2: Well, uh thank you for joining us on another Books of the Year podcast. Um we're delighted. To... Matt's there somewhere in the east, I am uh, here, I think. Yeah. Yep, very good. Uh and also uh, connected by the delights of a, a fantastically uh, new and wonderful Wi-Fi. Um <laughs> the wonderful Anthony Horowitz joins us. Hello,
0: Anthony, how are you? It's a pleasure to see you, Simon, and very nice to see you too, Matt. <laughs> you
2: we should we we should say before we go any further that if there's any banging and hammering on this Uh, particular download uh, that you've got it's not me, it's not Matt, but it is Anthony. All the bangings come from your end,
0: correct? I have just moved house. I'm in the middle of it. I'm surrounded by removal men boxes, and I've been carrying, I think, about 1,500 books and trying to arrange them on the shelves. It's like some kind of fantastic jigsaw puzzle of my own life, of, you know, when did I write this book? When did I buy that one? Where does this one go? It is insane. I will never move again. They will carry me out of this house. <laughs>
2: my father was, was, a, was a headmaster, and, and I remember... The removal men said the people they hate moving the most are doctors, writers and, and teachers because of the vast number of books that they have and it weighs a tonne. So I'm you know, know, most of your these removal books, men are the same.
0: Most of these books I bought perhaps in the 20th century and it doesn't occur to me at the moment that we are now in the 21st century, the digital age. Is it actually necessary to have thousands literally of books in the house and it's an interesting thing because I think the answer to that question is just about yes but as I sit here with a very sore back covered in dust and sort of vaguely worn out (laughs) I do have to wonder
2: Anthony's new book is The Twist of the Knife. Matt is going to describe the cover as he does so well. Off you go Matt, take it away. Yes, um so
1: we've got a, a front cover that is dominated by well I'm going to say this is uh, Regent's Park Canal, uh, isn't it uh, Anthony because uh, that's where our murder or close to where our murder takes place. Uh, framed in the center is an underpass along that canal and we've got a couple of pigeons dancing across the front. In the in the far distance we can see a shadowy figure but in the foreground splashes of blood and then uh, picked out in red the twist of a knife Anthony Horowitz uh, the best-selling new Hawthorne mystery and then a a nice little uh, word from the Sunday Times saying easily the greatest of our crime writers
2: that is a fantastic it looks like a sticker but it's part of the cover I'm just going to quote that again Anthony so that you can enjoy the moment easily the greatest of our crime writers that must make you feel Mm. pretty good
0: you know, as Matt was describing the cover, I thought, is he going to actually read that wonderful quote I got from the Sunday Times? Will he find it? Will he read it? And then he read it, and then you read it as well, Simon. That's why I love being on your show, because you two are such mensch, or whatever the plural of mensch is. Yes.
2: Uh Well, the thing and the great thing is it comes from the Sunday Times, um, uh, who, of course, are intrinsic to the telling of this tale. One of their staff uh, is. (laughs) So they wrote this, obviously, before The Twist of a Knife, I can only imagine. So just introduce us to to where we are with The Twist of a Knife, Anthony.
0: Tell us where we are with this book. In The Twist of a Knife, a play of mine called Mind Game has its premiere at a London theatre and gets a shockingly bad review. It gets lots of bad reviews, but the worst one comes from a Sunday Times critic by the name of Harriet Throsby and the very next day Harriet Throsby is found murdered with a knife in her chest and what is strange is that my fingerprints are on the knife which also belongs to me and there's a hair from my head has somehow latched itself onto her clothing too and the only person who can sort out this mess and get me extricated from prison is a man called Daniel Hawthorne who of course is a detective in the last three books but the trouble is he and I have just had a, a big bust up because I'm refusing to write any more books so he refuses to help and that's how the book begins.
2: So, so just get us back into the world of you being in your book and Daniel Hawthorne, Just because I know this is the fourth, but just take us back to why you decided to do this and the kind of strange... Meta world that you've introduced us to here.
0: Well, this is what is called meta-fiction. You're absolutely right. And and it began with my publishers asked me to do a series of detective stories, and I began by thinking, what could I do that hadn't been done before? What, how could I do something to the who done it that would give it a twist and a sort of a new, a sort of an originality? So I looked first of all at the detective. Could he be? Would he be English? Would he be from somewhere else in the world? Would he be uh, black or white, male or female? Uh, would he be in a in, in a wheelchair? Would he be a ghost? Would he, it suddenly occurred to me that actually every single thing has been done. But then I began to look at the sidekick and I had this thought, What wouldn't it be interesting if the writer, instead of being the guy on top of the mountain with the view of the entire landscape, the man who knows everything, or the woman who knows everything, who knows who the murderer is before the murder has even been committed. Supposing I went off the top of the mountain and into the book. So what I did was I turned myself into the narrator. And the setup is, is that Hawthorne is a detective who wants to make more money. He approaches a writer to write about him the writer he approaches is me. So I become Watson to his homes. And the whole book, in fact, the whole series, latches on to this slightly sort of unusual relationship where instead of being the cleverest person in the book, I am the most stupid. And also I have a real problem uh, in my relationship with Hawthorne, who is, who is a very difficult person. He has a lot of political views with which I disagree. He also calls me Tony, which I really cannot stand. Uh, and so we have a slightly sort of fractious relationship and that is how the book works. Uh, Were you
2: slightly concerned that you don't come out of the book very well?
0: (laughs) Um, well, no, not really, Simon. I mean, the funny thing is that when my publishers heard about this idea, they, they got very nervous and said, is, is this going to be an ego trip? Are you, are you going to be promoting yourself as the world's greatest writer and, you know, successful and, and, and talented and all the rest of it? And in fact, I, I said to them, look, first of all, the books are not about me. I am just the sidekick. I am not the main character. But the Antony in the books is it has to be said singularly unsuccessful. I mean, he, he never solves any of the murders. Often he finds himself in hospital at the end of the book, having been stabbed or strangled or whatever by the, you know he always finds himself attacked by somebody. In this book, of course, it's a a very, very rough ride. You'll notice in the acknowledgements, I even have to acknowledge the help I got from my therapist in having to deal with the experiences I'd gone through. So it it is a sort of a strange thing when I come across as sort of, I don't think I'm a complete idiot in the books, but I come across as perhaps not the brightest.
2: uh, Just just before Matt comes in, I just want to ask, because you've mentioned the acknowledgements uh, at the end. And, And I think, The reader is entitled to feel slightly discombobulated at this point, uh, Anthony, not just by this extraordinary story, this puzzle which you've uh, put into this book by the fact that the credits appear to be written by the Anthony Horowitz in the book and not
0: by you. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I love about you, Sam, is that you not only have read the whole book, you've actually even managed to get through the acknowledgement at the very end, which is really above and all beyond the Call of Duty. Yes, I mean, the, even the credits are becoming a little bit meta fictional now. And, and I, I, <laughs> I, you know, because it's it's also so difficult because the, 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 the core of the book is true. I did have a play called Mind Game. It was on in the West End, it was at the Vaudeville Theatre. Um, not actually in the year uh, in which the book is set but but uh, and it also did get some fairly bad reviews um so i think part of the fun of the books is trying to work out what is true what is fiction and what sort of lies in between and 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 how how they all work together
1: Anthony, I adored this book. I only finished it last night, but I raced through it. And when I say that, I mean that there's a massive compliment because I couldn't put it down at all. It was an absolute classic. I had no idea right up until the end. I had no clue who'd done it. And it, and it, it raised the question of me in me of, of how much we love whodunits. And they're having something of a revival at the moment with the, the the Knives Out movie, there's the See How They Run movie, which is out now. And even with the 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 tropes that we are all familiar with. In fact, there's a um, a character in the See How They Run says, we all know that if there's an insufferable character right at the start, they're the one getting bumped off. And yet we all know that, but we all absolutely adore it. We are all along for the ride. And I wondered, I mean, I, I said the revival of whodunit. The fact is, it's never really gone away. We, we've always loved Who Done it. But what do you think is at the root of that, Anthony? <sighs>
0: There are lots of things really to go to, to consider. I think that first of all, the more difficult the age you live in, the more stress you have around you, the more difficulties you face, the more comforting and reassuring you will find a whodunit. That I think is the core of it. A whodunit is all about the truth. We live in a world in which the truth is quite hard to find. But actually, when you get into the world of murder mystery, it is about absolute truth. I can't think of actually a, a literary genre where every iron is dotted and every T is crossed to such an extent, you know. And, and there is this sense also of well-being in a murder mystery. It starts with a community at war with itself it might be a village midsummer somewhere or it might be you know an island or whatever it is it's it's somewhere where there is a killer. And so obviously, there are very, very deep set and unpleasant emotions are going on. Everybody is suspicious of everyone. And in comes the stranger. The stranger is the detective. And and 350 pages later, he will leave that community healed, calm, at ease with itself. And I think that is what we are looking for now. It's interesting that in COVID, books really spiked. There was a huge 5% turn up in the sale of books. Of course, there wasn't much else to do, was there? But within that spike, it was murder mysteries that actually did the best and i think that was also part of it that sense of reassurance of drawing up the blanket forgetting the outside world and just going for the ride and, and the and the pleasure of will i guess it or won't i
2: can i ask you about the uh, the mind games play which which you've already mentioned uh anthony which uh, you said got some bad reviews It got some good reviews uh as well, and it went to Broadway, and Ken Russell directed it. Uh, you know, so this is an interesting choice of play that you've put in there. But also, if I've got this right, there are only three actors in Mind Games, as you outline uh, in the book, and one of the characters in the play writes true crime stories, and the this is the way you're playing with us. And your critic Harriet Throsby is also has also dabbled in crime fiction so it looks wherever we look in the book we have another conundrum we have another layer which you've added to it
0: well, actually, you're quite right. I mean, it's sort of a hall of mirrors effect is what I'm trying to get here. Uh, you know, where yeah. the real life is reflecting what's happening inside the play, which is reflecting what's happening inside my real life as well. The, incidentally, the reason I chose Mind Game as the play is that actually my more recent play was Dinner with Saddam, which was on at like, the uh, Menier Chocolate Factory. And I began by sort of thinking I would do that. But then I came up with the problem that it was quite recent. And, you know, if I cr- said that the lead actor was called, I don't know, John Smith. Everybody would know, but actually, it was Sanjeev Bhaskar who played the part. And so, I would have this problem that people would read the book and reflect on those actors, which would not allow me the freedom to um to, 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 to create the fiction that was necessary for the whodunit. Uh, but what was good about Mind Game is that it has been on an awful lot. The production in Sydney with Ken Russell. I I it was the last thing he did in his life. You know, and, and I met him, and he was a huge hero of mine. Growing up, perhaps you too, Simon, will remember the you know the, the how his significant his films were how major how everybody talked about ken russell films and uh, and then suddenly his career ended it sort of fell off the edge of a cliff he was a very very interesting man to meet at the at the very end of his life although i have to say that the production that he did was not loved either that that off-broadway production you know no one has ever quite got Mind game which is sort of interesting and from my point of view incidentally i have to say that i'm not disheartened by a perceived failure in the world of theatre. I think that the whole secret of writing is to keep exploring, keep testing yourself, keep sticking your neck out, and not worry what comes. And the book, The Twist of a Knife, is not a revenge against critics who didn't like my play. It goes with the territory. If you're going to write a play, you're going to get reviewed. The difference is that if you review a book or a television show of mine, you're reviewing something that happened three years ago. That's when I wrote it. If you review a play of mine, it hurts because it's happening on the night.
2: But what, but what you're doing, but it seems to me, by using mind games and incorporating it in the twist of a knife, it's this Hall of Mirrors. You are messing with our mind pretty much on every level, Anthony.
0: And my own, actually. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, the, when I'm writing these books, even I find myself sort of trying to work out what really happened, what, what was true and what was not. But, you know, the point is, Simon, that the... the the detective story, the who done it, the murder mystery, which is at the core of these books is what really matters to me more in some ways than the metafiction. What matters to me is what Matt just said, actually. When he said that he enjoyed the book, that's great. When he said he didn't guess the ending, that's fantastic. That's what I'm after. I want somebody to be glued to the book and to get to the end, a little bit like an Agatha Christie where you get to the sort of final chapter and you should have guessed it. All the clues are there in plain sight. Everything is actually up front. I never cheat with the reader. And, and if you get it or you don't get it, that I think is a pleasure. What we're talking about here is simply the different perspective that I've put onto the whodunit, which means that we're approaching it from a different angle with, I think, a lot more humor and and a, and a lot more sort of, as you said, sort of mind games. As you say, the play is called mind games. The book is itself a bit of a mind game, too.
1: I certainly found it a mind game. I love, I, I love the fact that all the clues were there, Anthony, and I, and I just didn't put them together until you told me on the page. I want to talk to you about descriptions. I have to say, I always struggle with descriptions. I struggle to write them. And, I, and I, whenever I'm, I'm reading a book and I see a paragraph coming, a lengthy paragraph coming up that is description, I always, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at this, I scan through it because I, I, I struggle to connect with it. However... There is a description in your book which is so concise and so effective. I, as soon as I read it, I underlined it because I thought, "My goodness, there's a master of his craft." You describe Hawthorne with just three words. You say Hawthorne, murder and cigarettes, and I knew instantly. Instantly, I had a picture in my mind of what that meant: murder and cigarettes. Was that, I, I mean? I'm I'm hoping that was so, that you came to that description instantly, or was that one that you spent hours filtering other words through your mind before, before you put them on the page. How, how did that come about?
0: Well, first of all, I mean, I, I'm not a great lover of massive descriptions. I like things to be sharp and to the point. And Simon might share this with me, because we've both had careers in both children's books and adult books. And if you're writing a children's book, you don't want the kid to sort of come to a paragraph of description about a field, a house, a school or whatever it is, because what they want is to get to the next, I don't know, the next shooter, the next chase, the next joke, whatever it might be. And I've brought this over to adult books to a certain extent, too. And I, I like being concise. I think that the that books should be like TV shows in a way, which is to say that you should race through them and find them easy to read and enjoyable, rather than getting sort of worn down in the writer's obsession with I don't know the foyer of the Vaudeville Theatre on on um on the Strand. So so I suppose it becomes from a children's training carried into adult books. Plus, I think her love of of writers like I don't know Raymond Chandler, for example, who was a pretty dab hand that absolutely, or for that matter, Ian Fleming, who could in just three or four words absolutely capture the scene and if you can do it in four words why go for four paragraphs
2: murder and cigarettes could be the name of your next one
0: well except what i'm trying always and I, and i mentioned in the book how difficult it is getting to give some kind of literary illusion uh, inside it so that you know twist is a little bit feeble but the sentence is death the word is murder the line is whatever it was um, is you know they're always literary style type in fact the next one is going to be called i think it's going to be called simply close to death uh, it's set in a close in, the, in, um, in, oh, in right. Richmond, okay. in fact. So, uh, hence close to death.
2: Um, is there... So, you, you talk about the opening night uh, of uh, Mind Games and it must be an absolute, as, as you portray in the book, a truly terrifying moment. Is, just because, you know, there are so many things that can, that can go wrong and it's kind of nothing is up to you anymore. It's all down to the technicians and the actors. Is there an equivalent in publishing... Anthony, is it like, like the day before a book, one of your books is published? Is there anything in publishing as terrifying as the opening night of a play?
0: No, in a single word, simply not. I don't think so. I mean, I finish a book and I often have this sense of, oh, my God, is this book any good? Is anybody going to like it? And then you sit waiting for your agent to call you and then the agent brings and, of course, agents always love your books. That's what they're paid for. Uh, and, and then they get sent to the publisher and the publisher hopefully comes back and says it's wonderful or occasionally will say, look, the first two or three chapters aren't working. and You have to rewrite or whatever. But that is all private. It's private criticism. I think that the terror of a first night is because it happens so publicly. There is no escaping it. I mean, you know, the, I remember going not to, to my own place, but to parties of first nights where in the old days, 30 years ago, the first review would come in. At right around about 11 o'clock. It killed the party stone dead if it was a bad review. And you were talking about the Ken Russell production in New York. I remember that my Jill and I, my wife and I, were in New York for the first night, and we were having lunch with one of the actors the next day. One, there's only three actors in it, and one of them had, had said, look, we must all have lunch to celebrate. And I, and I read the first reviews that night, and they were not good. And I said, I bet you that lunch is cancelled. And sure enough, breakfast the next morning, I get a phone call, <coughs> actually, I'm so sorry, I've got a terrible sore throat. And... and, and, and And that is the sort of the slap in the face, the very public slap in the face and the very inescapable slap in the face you get if you get bad reviews. But that said, Simon, the plus side is there is no type of writing but it's more exciting in a way than writing for the theatre because, first of all, you have got that immediacy. And secondly, every night is different. Every night it changes. Every night the audience contributes to what you have written by their response to it. So it can be fantastically exciting too. And and you, you were kind enough to point out that Mind Game did get its fair share of good reviews. So did you for Saddam. It's not all bad. It's never all bad in any way. I've, I've said this before, maybe even to you, that... That any if you do not, if you fear failure as a writer, I don't think you can ever fully succeed. You've got to push yourself and not worry about what people are going to think. That, that if that's what you want to write, go for it. Did it not make you think about
2: not doing another play? I mean, you 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 know that you have success with Bond, you know that you have success with Holmes, you know that you have success uh, with this, this extraordinary Hawthorne series. Did anyone say to you, Anthony, play it safe? You don't. You don't need to write another play.
0: Well, nobody has said that. I have three plays in my head as I sit here talking to you. I'm thinking <laughs> of, of writing a. I'm thinking of writing a murder mystery, possibly with a co-writer, another murder mystery writer. We both have been talking together about doing a play because we were fascinated by the fact that it's so difficult to do a who done it on the stage. Is there a way of doing it? And I think we have come up with that. I'm quite interested in writing a play about um, the uh, bombing of Hiroshima, which may sound a very different sort of thing. But I was researching it for a TV show, but it never happened, and became fascinated with the decision-making process of why. The the bomb was dropped, and I thought, "Wow, there's a very interesting play in that, in that as well." And I'm having meetings with people who want me to write plays for them, uh, and you know, seeing what comes up with that. So, no, I mean, the the, the, the very reason of my lack of major success in theatre is is why I want to continue. I will write one play one day that actually does the business.
1: Anthony, we've talked already about how the the Anthony Horowitz in the book is an exaggerated version of yourself. And there's there's quite a lot in the book that my instinct is... That come from the real Anthony. So, in other words, the, the interest in theatre um, and and not liking the area around Euston Station, which I absolutely concur with. Having to walk through it every day on my way to the studio and back, it's not a it's not a pleasant area to be in. I also, as a, as a sidebar, I also watched Tenet by Christopher Nolan, which obviously features in the book um for the first time last night and my goodness within an hour i had no clue what was going on is it is it liberating for <laughs> you to write this sort of exaggeration uh, exaggerated version of yourself
0: is it is it I, I, look what i enjoy doing i think is writing about writing i think the writer's life i i was Years ago, going to write a book based on *Adventures in the Screen Trade* by William Goldman, which you may know, or possibly on writing by Stephen King. I've always had an interest in in talking about the one thing I know about in this world, which is writing. And I am unusual in that I have written so many different genres. And I thought it would be absolutely wonderful to write about, um, you know, basically how to write television, how to write film, how to write whatever. Not what I'm saying; I'm an expert, but at least I could share my experiences. I read about five or ten pages of it and found it excruciatingly boring. Boring to write. And I thought very boring to read. So I stopped what I can now do in these books is to write about the life of the writer in a sort of a way that makes me smile, which has some kind of heart to it. Like, for example, the, the couple of pages you get about my career working in theatre as an usher of a national theatre and, um, and about having, you know, all my life, Gone and and love plays and drama uh, and visiting the theatre, but but it allows me to do it in a way that is entertaining rather than didactic, which is and which is rich rather than dry. So that that's that's why I do it, and 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 and, and I think that's what makes the books, I suppose, different.
2: Uh, can I, actually, I want to ask you about one of the characters that's uh, that plays uh, a, a part in your story, and that is the actor Jordan Williams, and you have an interesting conversation. Uh, with him, I don't think we're giving anything away here. But w- you have a conversation about cultural appropriation, and I wondered uh, if you could what you can what you can say about that and why you chose to put that in.
0: Well, obviously, there've been an enormous amount of arguments recently, and it is a very sort of hot topic at the moment. The whole question of cultural appropriation, about writing about other ethnicities, writing about other genders, even, and about what a writer is or is not allowed to write. And I think that although I try to shy away from becoming a sort of, you know, standing on a soapbox and banging the drum, I do have strong views. And one of those views is that writers should be allowed basically to write what they want to write. The, 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 my concern is, and I, I've said this publicly, that the, the offence caused is these days so extreme. So, so you know, the reaction is so, so lacking in nuance uh, and that the argument is so almost violent at times. And so I deliberately created a character who was from a different ethnicity to myself. I chose a Native American for Jordan Williams. I did consider other ethnicities. And I wrote an argument, effectively, where the character is telling me I can't put him in my book because I am uh, guilty of what is called cultural appropriation. But the point of the chapter is, is that actually by discussing it together, We come to an understanding and the chapter ends, I think, quite comically when I say to him, actually, if you like, I can make you a North Korean. Uh, In other words, just with a flick of the pen, I can I can change his ethnicity entirely. Uh, Which he says, no, thank you. But But a sort of an understanding is reached. So that's what that chapter is about. It's about the fact that we can debate these things without losing our temper with each other, but actually learning from each other.
2: Uh, I wonder if I I mean, this might be entirely wrong, Anthony, I think you're on social media less than you used to be. Is that because the temper of many of these conversations is a
0: bit vitriolic? Well, social media is responsible for so much harm in our society, because it reduces things to black or white, good or evil, yes or no, and nothing in between. And I do get a little bit put out by some of the responses you get for even the mildest sort of comment uh, uh, about sociology, about life, about politics or whatever. So I'm not less on the on, on Twitter, I'm still there, but I use it now almost 95% exclusively for books, just books. Readers contact me, I contact them back and say thank you for reading me and not much else. And I do think that that social media has become quite boring in a way because nobody now dares really uh, have any sort of real discussion at all. You know, I'm sure you're so Simon, irony, sarcasm, politics, opinions are all very dangerous if expressed in 280 characters or whatever it is you're now allowed so so you're correct i i don't now use it in any way except for sort of the you know and, and don't get me wrong I, I i don't describe that i i have followers who 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 tweet me about my books and i'm always very happy to hear from them and to and to try and be helpful where i can people ask me favors on, the, on that can you sign a book can you visit my school can you do this can you do that and if i can i will
2: you said, you said, I saw you do an interview uh, about the book, Anthony, I think it was on ITV, actually on ITN News, and you, you described yourself as thin-skinned. That was, I think you, you said that that was true. And I just thought that's just so interesting when you've written a book about um, a theatre critic being murdered that, that you felt, have, I mean, have you, have you always been thin-skinned? Are you more thin-skinned than you used to be or are you tougher than you used to be?
0: I think I'm the same. I don't think I've changed at all. I mean, you know the old cliche about writers only for remembering, remembering the bad reviews. You get 17 good reviews and one bad one. The one bad one is one that sticks with you. And I, I, I think that... I've been working so hard, Simon, to try and make my books good. You know, I could write bad books now if I wanted to. I mean, I could just relax and not bother because at the end of the day, I could write an Alex Ryder book and the market is sort of there for it. But with every Alex Ryder book, with every Hawthorne book, with every series book, whether it's... Or every continuation book, I just work so bloody hard to try and get it right that when someone comes along and just says, actually, nope, didn't like it, it sort of hurts. I mean, it, it sort of feels... It feels strangely um personal um, but so it's not quite about being thin skinned. It's just about feeling uh, really. I mean, did you have to say that? Is that really what you think? And and sort of, it's almost sort of, it's almost it's almost not understanding why the critic or why the person on social media has been so nasty. Uh, not that they're always nasty, and silly, but also negative. That's the word.
2: Yeah. So I have, I just, I just got one more question, uh, Anthony. You, you, you were talking about you enjoy. You mentioned Stephen King, uh, and you, and uh, what a delight! What an incredible book uh, that is about the on uh, on writing. But just on your art form, and can you lift the curtain a little about the construction of such an intricate puzzle that you've described for us in? twist of a knife because it is it is a book which should i guess was re- i think was written with relish certainly will be read with relish but the does the does the puzzle occur to you in does it come fully formed or do you work it out as you go along what is what can you tell us about that construction
0: well i always think of it as a bit like a dartboard i start with somebody killing somebody else for a reason. A plus B equals C. All crime fiction, all whodunit fiction, is based on that very simple premise. A is one person, B is the other person, C is the reason why A kills B. Now, as soon as you come up with an interesting motive, and that's where everything starts for me, the motive, I think, in A Twist of a Knife for the murder is actually quite a fun one and quite an interesting one. That's what makes whodunits work instead. It's not the intricacy of the plotting or the cleverness of the clues. It is actually about the human nature of the murder. My favourite or one of my favourite Alex uh, Agatha Christie books is um, The Mirror Crap from Side to Side, because the motive in it is so every day, so common, so recognisable, and so understandable. I think I've said before that that we should always have a sort of modicum of sympathy for the killer because they're not mad people. They're people who are, have problems and people who are bad people, possibly, but they are nonetheless often scared or lonely. And in, in the twist of a knife, when the killer is finally identified, it is with a certain degree of sadness uh, creeps into that final chapter. Um, so I start with the centre of the core. Having now said A plus B, A is one person. If it's a, a Cook, then I need to start thinking about the restaurant where that person might work and the people that they work with and then and and I need to sort of understand that world and If the person they murder is shall we say a food critic in this case, then I start ex- exploring that area and thinking about that person and as I build around these people. I am building the dartboard all the way out to the double 20s. And so it's a sort of a circular motion. So having got, shall we say, this food critic, the food critic is married. The person who he is married or she is married to may hate them. So that's a second motive for the murder. And then you begin to see that that person who they are married to might have a connection, you know, with somebody else in the dartboard. And so you just sort of begin to draw it. I think I probably spend about four months thinking, planning, drawing doodles, scribbling in notebooks, asking myself, of questions: Why did this person order the? You know how? Or, 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 yeah. You know, why did the person order the food? That's a clue. They were a vegetarian, so why did they order the sausage roll? You know that sort of thing. And then you begin to play with that and think about it. Um, in my new book, somebody uh, uh, that exact clue more or less appears. The one I'm talking about. Um, close to death, has a character who is a vegetarian. So why is there a McDonald's straw in his desk, a, a straw out of the McDonald's hamburger chain? Uh, and that to me is a great clue and it works in the story. So that's jotted down in ingredients. And I sort of build it all, as I say, in a circular way. And then I finally start to write it. And of course, when I write it, I can change everything. I can and go back on myself and plant new clues and reseed it. But I can't begin unless I have 10, 20 pages of notes in my book for how the book is going to be. That's fantastic. It was like
2: a masterclass, uh, Anthony. It doesn't sound as though you're slowing down at all. Uh, you have hinted sometimes that you're going to start slowing down, but I don't think you are.
0: Well, I keep wanting to, but, but you know, I'm <laughs> driven by a love of books and a love of reading and a sense of. Of, of that I have arrived, actually, in a strange sort of way. That I have finally achieved what I wanted in my writing, which is to have to, to produce, you know, both the Alex Ryder series, but now the Hawthorne series for adults, and and to have to have, you know, that's that's why I was born. Uh,
2: Anthony, it's always a pleasure uh, to speak to you. Thank you very much. Keep on writing so that we can keep on having these podcasts with you because uh, it's fantastic every time. The Twist of a Knife is new from Anthony Horowitz. Uh, Anthony, thank you very much.
0: Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeline Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini-episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums.
1: Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com